Hello, and welcome to Unstuffing Our Story with me, Catrice Horsley. On today's episode, I am honoured and very happy to be speaking to gardener and advocate for the Green, Alice Fowler. And we cover topics as diverse as white supremacy, mycelium networks, and how trees can talk to each other. So come and join in our conversation. Open your ears and listen to Alice Fowler not only unstuff her story, but unstuff the story of the green. So welcome, Alice Fowler. We we just had a little bit of a discussion about how we would describe you. And you are certainly not just a gardener, you are an incredible gardener and your garden encompasses not just stuff that's in the soil but I think concepts and ideas that take seed in people's minds and also in the minds of communities and neighborhoods so welcome to Unstuffing Our Story. Thank you for having me. I was very chuffed with my introduction there just have to tell you that. Yeah that's good. I'm now mulling on it a bit more, really, mm. on what it means to do what I do. Yeah. Uh, and it is an odd thing. I always thought I would, you know, when I started my training, I thought I was going to be a traditional gardener and be outside, you know, physically tending every day. And the reality is that happens sometimes, but it, equally there's as many days when I'm doing other things. I guess the thing that holds it all together is that, like, every day I have green thoughts you know my my thinking all day long is about the green things that make up our world and what they mean to us and what they mean to each other and what they mean in the scheme of things and what they can teach us and philosophically scientifically how we interact oh I love it from them Mm, because I think if you took out the word green and inserted the word story then it would be the same. So I'm not out telling stories the whole time, but I'm constantly thinking in terms of story and thinking what stories mean and thinking what they mean within cultural uh, perspectives and thinking of the science behind stories. So in some ways, for me, perhaps the stories are the glue to mankind, but perhaps the green is the glue not just to what is human, but what is off the earth as well. And it binds us to it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing about green things is that they are, we only exist because of them. And that's kind of in some ways an obvious thing to say, you know, we breathe in, they breathe out, Mm. breathe out, they breathe in, you know, they, they create the atmosphere that we can survive and exist with them but they do so much more you know they were they were the beginning of all our medicine they were the ways that we first dyed and colored our worlds they made made our clothing our houses you know early baskets boats they were how we moved through the world and you know now it's quite easy to feel very far away from them and to not have this sense that they that we are intimately and intricately interwoven with this other, Mm. this Mm. other being. But, you know, we are still today as reliant on them as we have ever been. I was wondering whether you could, because you live in a city, whether you could talk about what what is the story behind the green in urban settings? Um, so the green occupies a really interesting, interesting, sometimes very literal, in the true meaning of the sense of that word, um, kind of space within cities. So there's the obvious parks, which are designated green spaces. Yes, yeah. They are, they are the zoos of the kind of plant world. And then there's back gardens and allotments and community spaces, which are equally 
another version of that because they are tended to still so that you know that so we create two kind of clear spaces in cities we create tended to places where we have dominion over and then we have these other kind of liminal spaces which are sometimes as small as the cracks between the pavement where the plant world takes what it can in whatever way however tenuously it might be into our kind of hard concrete world so these are all the kind of weeds that grow out of the cracks i often think the bottom of the um you know the lamppost or the um corner of the um bus stop or the traffic lights you know that that point where the metal hits the concrete is often a tiny miraculous little garden where some small little thing has taken hold and those things are really interesting because there are many more of those in most people's daily experience than there might be of the garden or the park but because we don't actually give priority or acknowledge these things as even you know our plant friends or our plant people we have a kind of um uh, uh plant blindness if you yes like. yeah which yeah. means that if you ask people how many plants that they walked past in a day they would maybe think about the big trees or if they went past an obvious green space like a park or a garden but actually everybody is endlessly passing hundreds of these things sometimes thousands of them when you think of like little mosses and mm. uh, and liverworts and stuff like that and so, so we have the tamed and the untamed in, in cities. And uh, I, to me, they're both equally interesting. And I could spend kind of hours on both subjects, really. Um, Do you know what I, I'm finding interesting in what you're saying? There's, there's two things. The first thing that I remember as you're talking about these liminal spaces, these in-between spaces, was when I was little and I was born in a back-to-back so there was no garden or anything. We didn't have a, we had a tin bath. We didn't have a bathroom. Um, and we'd walk, it was on Summer Lane in Birmingham. It's right in the center of Birmingham. And we'd walk to Aston Cross where my grandma lived. And we'd walk over what my mum called the bomb peck because it was an old piece of bombed land. Uh, and it, it looked, you know, there's big bits of broken bricks and glass and, but amazing weeds, and, and we, we, I have no idea what they were called, but really pretty flowers. And whenever we went across, we would always gather armloads of these beautiful flowers for my grandma when we went to visit her. And for me as a child, and I think this is a really important thing, as a child, there was a sense of wonder in walking through that space. And I'm thinking that we often don't notice these plants that you're talking about and yet they are the they form one of the most important characters in the story of our world and our environment and it is almost like we're living in a story where the main characters are invisible to us and yet the rest of the story can't exist without them 100 percent and there's some really interesting things about those main characters. So they're not tended, they're genuinely wild. You know, you want to see a true wilderness, go look between the cracks in the pavement because nobody can go there. Mm. You can't, like you can't physically get into that space. So everything between those two pavement cracks are genuinely, genuinely living in a wilderness. Now it's really hard for the average person to get to a true wilderness. And you could unpack what the word wilderness is anyhow and what its meaning is and why we would create this idea of nature being out there. There's all of that sort of that to unpack if you wanted to, but most people crave at some point to be in what they consider the wilderness or the wild or the great outdoors or to be away from what they think of as man-made and all of that and yet every day we have these tiny i mean they are small but we have these tiny slices which we anybody can go and peer into and see this kind of what it truly means to be untamed
before we came online uh, and I started recording the podcast, we were talking about, you know, the garden or even let's call them the wildness between the cracks. They are the heroes in our story in a way. And I'm thinking about if they are the heroes in our story and we are we are not aware of them, how can we give them importance? How can we give them the recognition that they need? So what can we start to do to start to recognize the characters in the story of our world? There's a kind of, um, there's an eco-criticism kind of um, technique that, that started out for recognizing sound and sometimes they do it just purely on sound and then other times I do it just on kind of visual things which is that you set a time each day um, preferably sort of early in the morning and you for 10 minutes either traveling or standing still whichever you decide you want to do you write down all the man-made noises you can hear and then you write down in the next 10 minutes all the natural noises that you can hear and um, this this idea came about because it, I think about a piece of research which showed how actually what was happening was that children were beginning to have more and more man-made noise and experiences the natural one and you can do the same the same thing for scent and there's some really great bit of research from the 70s I think which showed how children had to name their favorite sense of, um, sense of smells and anybody who was born pre-World War II would say things like hay and summer and oh, you know they had these like farmyard mm. smells and things which really brought them back to childhood um, by the time you got to children who were kind of born in the 80s they were like petrol stations um, nail varnish yeah. um, the smell of plastic toys and so there'd been this massive shift from natural smells to manufactured ones and you can do the same with noise it's very hard to hear natural noise actually it's mm. very hard to separate it and it's very hard to hear that much of it particularly you live in a in a city you can start to do the same thing with plants and one of the things i always say to people is like and in a pandemic this is harder but you know on your on your way to work count how many green things you mm. see and like mm. have a little tally and then see if it changes because it will change over the months mm. there will be mm. periods where you see much more and periods where you see much less as the seasons come by but actually sort of forcing yourself on a walk to go along and and notice everything that you mm. can possibly see mm. in the cracks growing out of the buildings not the obvious stuff but mm. the kind of the small stuff and you don't have to be able you know to name it we're obsessed with naming oh, categorizing <laughs> categorization yeah. and naming and um, then you own it and you have yeah. the knowledge and because you know that that plant is called that plant then you have power and potency over it because you have named it 100 percent. these guys can just be named whatever you know the yellow thing i like or the, yeah you, uh, you don't have to i mean it's fun to learn the names of plants but it's not necessary mm. it's not mm. necessary at all in any way to enjoy them mm. because once you start noticing them then you start to see their life cycle and i think it's when you see the life cycle that something really changes so something that was very small grows a bit more and then one day you notice it's in flower and then maybe you notice something else visiting it maybe it has a poll pollinator coming to the flower and so mm. that changes mm. it then it sets seed and then you maybe see it die but you see it's you know it's seed yeah. further down and it's grown somewhere else and by really seeing the life cycle of a plant I think you start to genuinely have a relationship with it. For me the recognition of the life cycle of a plant throughout the year is also the recognition of the revolution of the earth and the cycle of the seasons and it attaches us to somehow something much bigger I think I've said to you before that living in Sweden and I'm not that far north I'm about as far north as Aberdeen in Britain but I remember standing on the balcony because <laughs> this sounds so stupid I remember standing on the balcony of the flat here 
and it was I don't know coming to autumn or something and and looking at where the sun was setting and thinking well that's wrong or it's the summer it was the summer and that's like no that's right literally the sun is wrong <laughs> this is what I was thinking the sun hasn't read the rules about you know rising in the east and setting in the west because that is not the west and living here has made me realize the tilt of the earth towards the sun mm -hmm. and so the sun rises and sets in totally different places throughout the year and it gives me a tangible physical sense of the movement of the earth and the movement of time and the movement of me within it mm. and that's on a big scale looking at that one plant like you were describing on your way to work throughout the year is that in like a microcosm i suppose it depends a little bit on the plant that you're looking at mm. i mean some because you know from the tiny little plant in the crack which maybe an annual and is just there for you know three seasons and then gone but equally there will be some giant tree that you will come upon at some part of your journey there's nobody who can't see a tree at some point and some of our urban trees are really like you know venerable things they have been around for a couple of hundred years at least um and that's that's a very big scale mm. uh I mean, when you really sometimes just stop to think what a tree has seen, like how mm. it physically seen its environment change. Yeah. I mean, when I say see, that's being so human. Uh, the tree doesn't see, but it feels, you know, it definitely mm. experiences and feels and its, its memories are held in its trunk. It has a, it does have a memory of sorts, not mm. how we think of memories working because it doesn't have a brain, but it has a different kind of brain, which is mm. the ground and its roots, how it connects to the world around it. And it does use that, that kind of, it uses the soil for memory. So it doesn't have an understanding of what has happened to it and uh, holds that in it. And I think that's a kind of really interesting thing. I mean, the, the point of all of this, I mean, not the point, that's the same thing to say, but we, we have always prioritized because of the way we see hierarchies and we we are an animal and we are the top we have traditionally looked at ourselves as the top of the chain in terms of animals we're the most advanced we're the cleverest however you know whatever which way that has been traditionally thought of it's meant that we've always put plants as lesser beings because they aren't animals and they don't have animal systems and no. mm. they don't have brains and and all of that uh and yet the science is beginning to show us that we might be incredibly wrong about that particularly around trees but i'm quite sure that with time that will encompass many other things other than mm. Trees. Mm. it's just the trees are the system that we understand right now uh somebody was saying that there had been some research that had come out about how trees can communicate with each other and something to do with giraffes and if giraffes start eating a tree in a line of trees then there's something that the leaves can secrete that is distasteful to giraffes so they'll start off eating the one tree move to the next and by the time they get to the third or fourth somehow the message has gone along saying secrete the giraffe shit stuff because we know we don't want to be eaten by them is that true or is that yeah. a myth? No, that's true. I mean, yeah. trees speak to their own species quickest and then they can speak to other species after that. So they they can communicate in all sorts of ways. They have to be connected via the roots. Mm. They have a harder time speaking to something who they're not connected to. But they have two forms of communication. They can communicate through the roots and they can also communicate by secreting um, organic compounds through their leaves into the air. And, and what, what's amazing and ironic, I think, but a lot of us in the countries that we regard as developed um, are going, wow, look at all this new research and this research shows this. And the people who live in reciprocity with their landscape and quite often peoples who are, uh, are non-literate in a, a written form 
because they're very literate in reading landscapes uh, and reading environments. But those people will actually go, oh, yeah, didn't you know that? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. really? Really, white supremacy has a lot to answer for. Yeah. Ultimately, that's what the, at the very bottom of that whole idea is one thing, which is white supremacy and, you know, valuing the written word over any other form of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, colonialization, agriculture, you know, modern agriculture, all of these things, they all have one root, which is which is white supremacy. White supremacy. Kind of terrifying, but. And, you know, you saying that because we have all been, no, people in Britain, people in countries, literate countries have been presented the idea of the green world, of plants, of ornamental gardens, of whatever, whether it was capability brown or other kind of well-known um, landscapers we were presented that through a particular narrative and through a particular lens. And what we're finding out now, um, and with the book, we've just read the book by Jamaica Kincaid mm -hmm. um, to do with colonialism and mm -hmm. the, the naming and the claiming mm -hmm. of plants and um, fruits, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that, about how it's been through one particular narrative that we have been um, given this concept of gardening and greenery? Yeah, I, and it's interesting because you can kind of pull that, that story back to kind of, you can kind of pull it back and back and back trying to find its orig origin and it, it ultimately ends up in paradise gardens whether it's a kind of Christian Eden based story or it's actually got more of a kind of it goes back further to kind of Persian roots mm. but it was about creating these spaces that were protected uh, and they were protected in places where it, it was important to protect things right so if you're out in a kind of in a, in a much drier desert-like landscape and you find water and you put a wall around it and you start growing oranges or lemons or whatever it is you want to do, then you, you create something that is like paradise, right? And the rest of the space out there looks barren, mm. not necessarily barren, but it looks it. Mm. And here you have, so you start protecting things. I think what's really interesting about those notions of protecting things is quite quickly, it's uh, not only about protecting crops, but protecting women. Mm. So, um, you, and you're putting your women that you value behind your possessions, essentially, yeah, exactly. because women were classed as yeah. possessions in so much 100%. of that. Yeah. And so the monastery garden suddenly starts to become a really interesting idea because, um, you know, again, it has this roots of keeping this thing secret and special and not allowing everybody to see these mm. things which are kind of, um, which are precious to you. That idea continues over and over again, you know. And like mm. I say, it has it has Persian roots, but it really, really becomes a big thing in Western mm. Mm. Um, society. Uh, you can trace it all the way through the medieval period, the Hortus Conclusus, mm. which was really big for keeping the kind of the land, um, the lady of the house protected. She wasn't allowed right. outside of that space. This was her outdoor space. The only outdoor space she might ever go to was this like little garden. It was like enclosures before enclosures. <laughs> well, and I think that's funny because it's interesting because that idea sits in our psyche somewhere so that I have my garden outside my house yeah. here and I've got a fence around it and it's yeah. my space and I protect it. You know, it's my, I don't want my neighbor's things hanging over mm. into my space. And I don't, mm. you know, like we've kept hold of this delineated space as an idea. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very strong in our psyche. Uh, and it has, I think, probably quite a lot of deep-rooted inherent problems with it, not just because of the history of the past, but also that we need to move to a place of community, of sharing, mm. particularly mm. if we're going to try and challenge some of the really complex things around 
the environmental crisis that we're moving to, what we need to do is really understand that the individualism that we have put ourselves in is not really working if we need to find a collective answer to something. Mm. So mm. the garden is a really interesting space because it is both a little paradise, a place where you do get to interact with nature. It is often people's most kind of immediate space where they get to go and have that nature experience, mm. even if it's just a pot on your balcony. Mm. I, I, I see that as much as gardening as I do somebody Absolutely. who has, has yeah. a big space. And so it's the in-between ground between your house and the wilderness, which is out there somewhere. And yet it's a very contested space. Yeah. Because of this idea that it belongs to me. You talk about my garden. Yes. Do in yes. my space. Perhaps I don't, perhaps the garden does not belong to me, but I should belong to the garden. I, it's, I, and again, I mean, uh, speaking with you, the, there's so many, it's not walls, it should be walls tumbling down and uh, it should be barriers tumbling down. That should be the metaphor that I use. But again, these different perspectives, as you're talking, I feel that I'm looking through a kaleidoscope and I make out one pattern and go, oh, yes. And then you say something and it twists. I'm like, oh, it's all disappeared. And it's this now, you know, this thought process, this way of looking at it. And as you're talking about the, the kind of individualistic approach to gardens and territorial, it's very territorial, this is my garden. And we've all heard about, I mean, even the phrase turf wars, <laughs> you know, I mean, where does that come from? Um, and also people, neighbours arguing over fencing and, you know, you've got half a metre of my space and my you know your fence is in the wrong place and they get incredibly violent and it's this thing about possessing this space this is my space yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean before i, I the enclosures acts mm. has a lot to answer for i'd have thought around that because before the enclosures act although there were some people who had considerably more land than others there was a commons and the commons had to be treated in a certain way for the commons and all for the commons to work for everyone. So that there was a kind of understanding that, you know, if everybody was going to survive, you couldn't take the lion's share, you couldn't overgraze, you know, there was collective understanding that was brought about out of necessity and 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 you know just the general gist of what a commons means mm. to share it everybody does need kind of a pretty much equal part um and then the enclosures acts came around in the uk and from there on in the class system really became transparent as well and so the you know in the enclosures act the the class system was really transparent and if you're at the bottom of that you get a small plot and that has remained we're always trying to get the bigger plot that we you know not only did you get a small plot but you were stolen land was stolen off you the commons was huge yeah and the plot yeah. that you remained with is not yeah huge and so i think that sort of exists somehow and i mean we'll, i'm endlessly put my head out the window and measure the gardens compared to mine two doors two doors down has half an extra strip and i cannot tell you the kind of the resentment green-eyed monster that yeah. is born in me when i look at that half yeah. extra strip yeah yeah so when i see gardens which i don't think attended the way that i want them to be so then i feel like why do you have to have all that space and don't even use it you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's justice injustice and it's um we have we have a lot of human emotions we have a lot of human emotions but what's what's really interesting me from the conversation with you is the thing that we're so bound up with our human emotions that we don't realize how dependent we are on those things that we don't recognize as human But what do you think are the main gifts that those bits of green give us? And what do you think are the main threats to them? 
Um, oh, the gifts are so many, aren't they? I mean, for me, the thing that I come back to over and over again, and in fact, I almost didn't turn up to this meeting because I, you know, I thought oh, I've got 10 minutes. I'll just go and start that job. It won't take more than 10 minutes. Uh, um, and then I was like, oh my God, it's, it's 15. And I had to come running up the stairs to catch you. Is that clock time is lost in the garden. So I think that's one of the most important. I really can't emphasize enough how important I think that is that we are taken away from clock time and put into different rhythms, different circadian rhythms, mm. you, you know, seeing out the life cycle of a plant. Um, so that there's these big seasonal rhythms that you're you're watching. You're also seeing the daytime rhythm of the sun rising and setting. Mm. So with the hour that you're out in your garden, you'll you'll feel the environment around you change. And I think that's quite profound mm. uh, because within that sense of changing time is all sorts of things internally that we can't perhaps articulate or start to understand, mm. but they are happening. Mm. You know, whether it's touching the soil and having this experience of different microbes. So mm. there's evidence to show that the soil has microbes in it and if you have played in the soil from a child you will carry these microbes in it and every time you go back to the soil and feel it physically feel it these microbes do their awakening thing and they directly affect your happiness yes they, they yeah. give you a jolt of yeah a jolt of feeling good yeah so you know, but for the simple things like the fact that, it, you know, daylight hours affect how well you'll sleep so mm. you're outside in the early morning, mm. the early evening, allows those rhythms to be set better so that you can have a kind of deep, meaningful sleep to the kind of interaction with the others. The, those others are huge, not just the mm. plants, but the beetles and the butterflies and the insects and the birds. Mm. There's a mm. whole kind of orchestra out there who are endlessly playing all day long. And only when you go out and be with them, do you get to understand how kind of intricate and fascinating their song is. As, as you're talking and, and particularly about time and also, you know, witnessing the sun come up and witnessing the sun go down and witnessing and experiencing, not witnessing, but just experiencing the seasons. I. I have this sense of quite often when I speak to people and especially during lockdown or during times when they feel pressurized or stressed, they say that they don't have the, they can't produce the energy in their bodies to move, to do the things they need to do. Like they are so heavy and they are so uh, immobile. Mm -hmm. in so many different ways and as you're talking about this movement and this cycle I'm thinking if we connect to those things we don't have to produce all of the energy ourselves it's almost like we reconnect ourselves weave ourselves in link ourselves in to this movement and momentum of the earth itself and somehow that gives us the impetus uh, or the pull. We don't have to produce it all ourselves. We just have to hook ourselves onto the right things in life that help draw us through it. I, I really think you're onto something there. I, in fact, I was thinking of us walking back through the woods from the allotment yesterday about the fact that there's a recent bit of study that shows that every time a leaf hits another leaf mm. through the wind, a little spark of electricity is made. And they were wondering whether they could harness this electricity to use as a source of free energy. But then they still don't quite understand why the tree is doing it. And I've been thinking a lot about these kind of tapping amount, tiny sparks of electricity every time a leaf touches another leaf. So imagine what's happening on a windy day. Mm. But where's this like energy going? And I was thinking, well, I don't, I mean, there will be an explanation, but do we really need an explanation? Mm. Isn't it quite obvious it's going back into the earth? So the garden is, you know, is this power bank of energy. It's just like you say, mm. you go into mm. it, you spend half an hour there, you come out 
bone tired. I mean, often I drag myself home, barely able to think how I'm going to put supper on the table. But I sleep, mm-hmm. you know, I yeah. sleep with a like a baby because I sleep with with all the tiredness that comes from having a body that's physically supposed to be used. Yeah, yeah. I and I'm, I'm smiling so much as you're talking about the leaves and the electricity. I'll imagine that on a windy day, because I think if there are any teachers out there, particularly teachers of young children, they will all tell you that on the windy day, all of that leaf energy goes into the bloody kids. Because <laughs> on the windy day, especially the younger children, they will go out and they come back in and it's like they are a pinball machine, balls in a pinball machine. There is no way that they can earth themselves. They are absolutely full of it. And, and as you were saying that, I was thinking this makes perfect sense. <laughs> this makes perfect sense. And even myself, if I'm, we've got a forest behind us here um, and it's windy, the sense of, not being able to contain my body cannot contain whatever it is that is happening in it it's 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 like a it's a charge I mean literally a charge within my body and I I do think and you mentioned it earlier the more we there is so much more to learn in this area So if those are the gifts that we're getting, what do you think at the moment are the main challenges? I know there's huge overwhelming ones, but I'm thinking of some of them that we can possibly feel empowered enough to battle against ourselves within our gardens, within our urban environments. Well, I mean, without doubt, land grabbing although it's a very big issue, is an issue. And every time everybody speaks up for any kind of land grabbing, I think it's Mm. so important. I think people feel like they've really, you know, planning systems and governance and councils and all of that have sort of put us in a place where we feel like we aren't able to stand up for the green spaces. But it is really, really important that people stand up for the green spaces, however small. It's not okay Mm. for people to keep building on and concreting over our green spaces and so every time anybody can raise that issue the soil has to breathe yeah when you pour concrete over it it stops breathing and it takes a long long time to restore that soil again to where it is a carbon sink and Mm. we need our soil to be the biggest strongest carbon sink that we have so that 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 is something people can do that is a simple not that simple but it is a thing that people go yeah I can actually fight against that I can write about it I can put some placards up I can um sometimes they also think it's just about raising consciousness consciousness yeah about saying to the to your neighbors oh I really like the fact that you've taken up the concrete and you're letting the soil breathe or like you know isn't this wonderful that we have a sustainable urban drainage system over here so that we don't have to have a big drain we can just have plants soaking it up yeah. I mean I think it's genuinely talking about all these spaces mm. as valuable rather than you know as real estate because that's yes. what happens is that people sort of talk about it as real estate and it's not it's got a much more profound value than that of, of mm. whatever you can do to build upon it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then I think within your own garden your practice within that space is really important. And we have had in the last hundred years, I suppose, since the Second World War, um, you know, we have had a profound shift in aesthetics, which is mm-hmm. about tidying up and neatening and, and mm-hmm. having things looking ordered and not having weeds in your mm-hmm. pavements and in your borders and long grass and we've really pushed this post-war aesthetic to extremes right mm. the bowling green lawn mm. Mm. perfectly mm. tended flower beds that don't have anything undesirable in them mm. and you know pruned mm. carefully pruned trees and all of this stuff and although none of those things are necessarily bad on their own, collectively what they do is create a green space which isn't useful for all the other players that need to use it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. therefore any amount of loosening 
that aesthetic value is really, really important. Mm. And I think there's two things in that. There's still a push right now to see your garden as um, an extension of your house. So it's yeah, absolutely. It's essentially an exterior interior that needs to be painted and decorated. Your garden does not need to be decorated. That is not the use of its space. Mm. It's not there to change it with the whims of the fashion so they come and go. That's really like a misuse of something very precious. And you are really privileged if you have a garden, mm. you know, from having only a balcony. Like mm. it's a huge responsibility to be able to have that space outside. So I, I really rally against this idea of decorating it right. in any sense whatsoever. You say that, you know, I, I'm thinking of the uses of gardens and uh, I'm, I, I've just written a, a report for um, an organisation that's involved in early childcare. And obviously, like, uh, forest school is coming in now, the, the need for uh, wild spaces for children to play in. But because of the current narrative regarding childhood mm -hmm. um, and the limited free space that children are given because parents having a perceived narrative about stranger danger, about abduction, mm -hmm. then a lot of the gardens are used as children's spaces mm -hmm. where they can play football, mm -hmm. where they can ride their bicycles, where they can because it's dangerous out there. Yeah. So you keep them in the safety of the garden. And for any like parents who are listening, I would say that the incidence of children being snatched, I think has gone up something like 1% since the 1950s. The reporting of children being snatched has increased 500, 600%. So there is a, a warped narrative about dangerous streets for children, a much bigger danger of cars, urbanization, in, mm -hmm. in that sense mm -hmm. but there is still something to be said for having a garden that is green and wild for a child to inhabit and discover the wild places between the cracks make sure the cracks are very big for those children yes it's funny you were saying that because I was thinking how much garden gardening had changed recently to being child-centric so that you're considered quite bad if you have kids and you don't have a child-friendly garden mm. and yet what and I was trying to articulate it and I couldn't and you have put it there but what a child-friendly garden is in today's terms is is a cage of some it's, it's, it's with, a with a concrete base with a concrete base yeah uh it's it's you know it's not really about exploration no. and, and nor does it really then meet anybody else's needs and you saying the thing about the extension of the garden being an extension of the house, essentially a lot of people who have got young children will slab their back garden and it's like a playroom and they've got plastic cars for mm -hmm. the kids to go in or they've got a lot of plastic toys out there. Um, and, and that's the way it has gone rather than something where there's a tree and there's shrubberies and you can do some willow weaving igloos or you know whatever it is um so yeah i i think the 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 impact there are various uh various behaviors that impact um and and one wonders where they came from and why they still exist when so much research research proves the positive impact of wild places mm. on children's well-being and development Alice Fowler, no guest leaves without answering the quick fire questions. Okay. Okay. I, I always say, I, I ask them quite quickly and most guests go, hmm, I'll have to think about that. So they're not really quick fire. Okay. So what was your favorite story as a child? I have this story that I've been thinking a lot about recently that my mother used to tell me, which was a story that she made up herself, which was clearly influenced by Beatrix Potter but was her own version which was about drowned mice and now when I think about it I think it's such a strange story that she told it but I loved it and and she told it after the bath so when I'd be wrapped in the towel and she was drying me off and it was about a mouse 
and her babies and in the hole the water the hole got flooded like her nest got flooded and she had to try and save her drowning babies and it recently occurred to me that my mother probably drowned the rice the mice this was probably her way of getting rid of them and then somehow this childhood story came out about it and um it seems so odd and like slightly unsettling but I loved this story about her having to go one after another and get yeah, the baby yeah. mouth and carry them out and put them in a and she'd get them all safe and she was very worried and then there was one she left behind you know it was like oh gosh blimey classic kind of you know children's tale <laughs> with actually no meaning to it I mean that no. was well connection connection with yeah. you her darling daughter meaning enough <laughs> yeah, I think even as a kid I remember thinking but I bet you've drowned mice <laughs> she's a ruthless killer my mother possibly so. other things but we won't mention them <laughs> um I want you to finish the next sentence and this is to do with you know how how do we live in a world that we want to live in how do we become who we want to be Creating our own lived stories requires being outside. I always think about this when I'm trying to write myself, like actions equal words. Mm -hmm. mm. And when I sit at the page, you know, I sit at the blank screen and I think, oh, I've got to write today. And I think oh, I have nothing to say. And it's like, well, actions equal words, go outside. Yeah. And the world's yeah. words will come. Wish that worked a bit better for me. Okay, hard on lockdown as well. God damn it! Um, what sustains you right now during lockdown, during the pandemic? What sustains you right now? Love, love. Oh God! Well, I love that answer. And you are allowed to comment on your own books here because I know you've written quite a few. But the next question is, what movies or books or series, documentaries would you recommend? Include the new children's book that you've done. Oh, I've written a lovely children's book because the illustrations are so beautiful. And that's thanks to a woman called Heidi Griffith, who's just made it charming, called Grow, Forage, Make. So that is a lovely thing. Um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin, I always get her name wrong, Waller. Kimna, I think is her, her name, but anyhow, it's called Braiding Sweetgrass, um, is a profoundly moving book written by a biologist and she's from, I think, Potawatomi tribe in America. So it's both of her indigenous experience, but also as a scientist. So it puts her indigenous knowledge and her scientific mm -hmm. knowledge together and is, if you don't cry, in the last chapter, then you have no I, heart. Well, I yet to meet anybody who doesn't end up crying in the book because it's that beautifully written and it gives oh. a great sense of hope. Oh. Um, um, and I have been recently really enjoying a book by um, a, another academic called Anna Ting called Mushrooms at the End of the World. Oh, yeah. Which yeah talks about these matsutake mushrooms which grow in the kind of northern hemisphere so it comes japan northern north america and finland and sweden also have them mm. they grow in kind of um disturbed forests basically i love and this idea of disturbed forests it's like no i'm so unsettled <laughs> it's like just leave me alone i've got some issues i'm working through sorry really that yeah. is these forests are like, and this mushroom sort of thrives on human disturbed sites, essentially. And it's the most expensive mushroom in the world. But really, it's a book about using the mushrooms to explain um, capital late capitalism. Oh. And as someone who's really interested in late capitalism, but like a high-end e economic theory sort of passes me by, even if I try and understand it, I can't stay with it having the whole thing re-looked at through the mushroom has made complete sense to me so i really have value okay. and has given lots of and just like the mycelium network has given lots of new ways to think about things mm. and i really mm. appreciated that and it's written in this very interesting very non-traditional academic style so it's oh. very short chapters yeah and again 
each time looking at each player and this big story. So it sets out the story and then takes all the players and looks at the story from their perspective. Oh, and wow. Fascinating. That's a good way to understand late capitalism, which we're talked about, which we're taught is this kind of linear line of just making more mm. when actually it's a mesh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a system. Oh. And the last question is, what is the most important story that we should be carrying right now? I think it probably is that story of reciprocity. Mm. The natural world. That, mm. you know, that it only works if you if you that idea and that notion told through many different stories so that we can start to understand how deeply connected and how necessary it is to be connected not to mm. be part of but to be connected, connected to yeah and to yeah. exactly um the world around us so i think any story that puts that at the heart mm. right alice fowler thank you so much for all of the time you've given us the wisdom the energy the different perspectives thank you for allowing us to place our eyes against the kaleidoscope of your world oh thank you and thank you so much for having me oh it's been a delight yeah. I'm actually really going to look forward to editing this one, which is quite rare. I hate the editing, but it'll be lovely to listen through this again. Mm. Have the most wonderful of days and thank you once more. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed recording that episode and even editing it. And the episode is actually the penultimate episode for this season of Unstuffing Our Story. So I'll be with you in two weeks, weaving together um, the past three episodes and the wisdom that those guests shared with us. And then I'm having a little break for a month and I'll be back strong and capable, hopefully, with more guests who will unstuff their stories and help us construct and deconstruct our own. So please join me in two weeks and please, please, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Give me some reviews so even you can suggest guests that you might want me to interview. And join us on our Instagram page, Unstuffing Our Story. So I look forward to being with you in two weeks. Take care for now. Bye-bye.